From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Wake Forest philosophy professor Christian Miller joins me to discuss his new book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. What is moral character? That is an open-ended question that has remained open since human beings discovered the value of critical thinking. Individuals like Aristotle and Confucius have wrestled with it. Others, such as Abraham Lincoln and Gandhi, sought to live out this perfect ideal in a rather imperfect way. My guest, Wake Forest philosophy professor Christian Miller, wrestles with this concept in his new book, The Character Gap. How good are we? Washington Post columnist and Brookings fellow E.J. Dion writes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught us that nothing that we despise in the other is entirely absent from ourselves. Christian Miller teaches us that the road to virtue lies in humility about our own virtue and an acceptance that others are struggling with their flaws. We are honored to have him on the public morality today. Professor Christian Miller, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, wh- what is character, or, or should I be more specific by asking you, what is moral character? Sure, it's a great place to start. So I think of character as, and moral character in, in particular, as our kind of moral fiber. It's who we are as moral people. It's what leads us to think thoughts, have feelings, and perform actions that relate to right and wrong, good and bad. So that's a very abstract way to characterize it. I think it helps to have something a little bit more concrete to get our minds around. Moral character comes in two varieties. There are, there's the good side of character, that's the moral virtues, and then there's the bad side of character, that's the moral vices. So the moral virtues are things like honesty, compassion, courage, justice, and then the moral vices are the opposites of those. There are things like dishonesty, cowardice, greed, injustice. But what they all have in common is that they are central to who we are as moral people. So an honest person, for example, thinks honest thoughts about telling the truth, is motivated by considerations of the truth as opposed to self-interest, and actually behaves in an honest way, telling the truth, not cheating, not stealing, uh, and so forth. So that's how I approach the, cop- the topic of character. Hmm. Now, uh, taking your, uh, the cover of your book, uh, uh, you have individuals such as Gandhi at one end of this character gap. Um, you have, uh, for obvious reasons, you have Adolf Hitler on the other end. But you contend in your work that most of us fall rather into what I would define as an uncomfortable middle. And what does that uncomfortable middle look like? Sure, that, that sounds exactly right. So I think of it as a kind of bell curve. On the one hand, there's, there, there's some people who are very vicious, who have really bad character, and that's what I use uh, Hitler to represent. On the other hand, that, there are some people who have excellent character, not perfect character. Everyone has some flaws, but I use Gandhi to represent the, the good side. And I'm really intrigued by the question of where do most of us 
end up on this spectrum? And I say, well, according to my understanding, it, we're somewhere in the middle. And where I'm coming from in developing that understanding is not necessarily history or current events or religious texts, although those can be helpful too. I'm appealing to the results of psychological research, carefully done experiments over the last 50 years, which put people in different situations and then see how they behave. Do they lie or not lie, cheat or not cheat, steal or not steal, help or not help? And so from looking at hundreds and hundreds of those studies, I was able to kind of craft a picture of how I think most people are. And it's exactly what you said. It's that most of us have a, a what I call a mixed character with some good sides and some bad sides. Let me uh, illustrate that a little bit more concretely. On the one hand, there are studies which find that people are willing to go out of their way to help strangers when they feel empathy for the suffering of those strangers. So this is, this is remarkable and very positive and encouraging. Though Empathy leads us to help other people we don't even know and for selfless, altruistic reasons. So that's a big plus. On the flip side, there are studies that find that we're quite motivated to cheat in a variety of situations if we think we can get away with it, not get caught, and it's rewarding. So that's not the picture I would have of an of a honest person, for example. That sounds to me not so admirable, negative side to our character, but also counterbalanced by some positive sides like empathy and helping. Now, as part of the challenge, um, I know that you mentioned that, that, that you've done some scientific study on, on the issue, but as part of our challenge uh, collectively grappling with this um, one of subjectivity, and, and what I mean by that is I can come up with a list that I define as moral character and one that you use in your, in your work, like uh, Paul's letter talks about the, the fruits of the Spirit. Right. And then you have uh, Dante's definition of, of purgatory, uh, but many of the great atrocities of human history were in fact supported by some notion of a moral good as interpreted by the Bible. So how does one adjudicate the, sort of that piece of subjectivity, and is that a tension in your thesis? Sure, for sure. It's a great question. So it is true that people have different understandings of what's good and bad, right and wrong, virtuous and vicious. What I try to do in my own work is start where there's lots of agreement. I acknowledge that there's disagreement on some points, but I also want to highlight that there's lots of agreement, and let's see if we can, can move the needle there. So take honesty again. Most people agree that honesty is a good thing, a virtue, and there's a lot of agreement about what certain failures of honesty would look like. So let me give you an example. Uh, when there's a test administered, this is an actual experiment, a test is given to some students, a 20-problem uh, exam where they would be paid 50 cents per correct answer. Now, the, in this normal control condition of this experiment, they would just take the test, turn in their answer keys to the person in charge, the person in charge would grade it, pay them accordingly, it would be done. There was another version of the experiment, though, where it was the same test, same monetary incentive, but in this version, the participants had a chance to grade the test themselves, then shred all of their materials and just verbally report how many correct answers they got. In the first group, the average was seven correct answers. 
where there was no opportunity to cheat. The second group, the average was 14, correct, in, in quotation marks, correct answers. Now, that's really interesting for all kinds of reasons, and it goes along with my idea of mixed character. But the point I want to use this for right now is that's something we can agree is not very uh, uh, admirable, virtuous, honest. Because it seems clear that in that second group, a lot of those people are taking the opportunity to cheat on this test. So we might disagree about other cases, but I think here's a clear case where I would expect an honest person to behave one way, and people, in fact, are not behaving that way. So we have good reason to conclude uh, you know, from studies like this that there's a failure of honesty. And then we extrapolate from that. We can find other examples and other examples and other examples where people are behaving in a ways I think we can agree on are not living up to the standards of virtue. And that's not going to settle everything. There's still going to be controversies about burning questions in society. There are going to be, be misuses and abuses of morality, as there have been in the past. But I'm trying to start with the agreement and build up from there. Now, I'm going to stay on that thread for a moment and, and give you a hypothetical. Uh, and we'll stick with honesty, since that's the one you, you, you posed. Uh, it would be possible for Martin Luther King to have a list of virtues that would include honesty. And conversely, I can see author Ayn Rand doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. right. But how honesty looks in the hands of each would, I, I'm guessing, would come out differently. I wonder how, how do you see that? Yes, so you're right. And we could come up with other examples where there would be some different disagreements. Um, so, you know, I, I would have to first kind of think about would they disagree so much on all cases, or would they have a kind of core of agreement? So, so in both the King case and the Rand case, would they agree about what I just said on the, the cheating on the exam? I would suspect that they would both agree that was wrong, morally wrong. That's not what an honest person would do. And is their disagreement going to be uh, prevalent, or is it going to be surrounding a core area of agreement? At the end of the day, though, um, this ultimately does take us to larger questions that I don't explore in my, in my book or in my, my research yet um, about the kind of foundation, the very foundations of morality. So where does morality come from? And there are two broad positions, one which says that there's an objective standard of right and wrong that governs all human beings, and maybe that objective standard was put in place by God, or maybe it just exists on its own like the laws of nature. Or the alternative approach is one that's more subjective, more relative, where human beings are the ones who create morality. We're the ones who decide what's right and wrong, whether that's individual human beings like myself, or whether that's cultures or societies which create morality. There are different ways to unpack that. But this is just a kind of fundamental divide about thinking about morality. Is it objective or is it more relative? My own take or my own position for what it's worth is that morality is more objective, but it's even if it is objective, it doesn't follow that we completely understand all the details of that objective morality. There's going to be disagreement like there is in science about what the objective truth is. Hopefully we can make more progress in discerning it. Well, let me just say before we go further that uh, when you write that next book, I we, we certainly expect the public morality to be in the acknowledgments for prompting you to think about these questions more deeply. So. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> how, how much of uh, our moral character depend, uh, depends on our actions versus the intent of our actions? That's great. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's both, and I don't know how to weight them against each other. So it, it seems clear to me that 
behavior by itself is not enough to count as a good person or a virtuous person. But also it seems clear to me that intense motivation, but that's, that doesn't follow through with behavior, is also not good enough. So to make it a little bit more um, tangible, if someone is helping often, but only doing it for self-interested reasons, like to make make themselves look good or to put it on their resume or to get a tax break for donations or even to get rewards in the afterlife. The behavior is great, and we want to say thumbs up to that, but the motivation is not virtuous. So overall, the assessment is, you know, uh, failure or virtue. Not, not quite there yet. But on the flip side, if someone is motivated to help, but when the time comes, they have experienced weakness of will. They give in to temptation. They, you know, they, they want to make that donation, but when the time comes, they think, well, I could use that, that same money to buy a new flat-screen TV or whatnot. Well, then that's also not kind of living up to the standards of compassion or kindness, the relevant virtue here. So I think it, both are crucial, and I don't know which one's more important, uh, but I think both are, are where I would want to go. If you're just joining us, my guest is Wake Forest philosophy professor Christian Miller, author of the new book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? And P- Professor Miller, uh, let's take a moment. What prompted you, uh, motivated you to, to write this text? So I've been working as a philosopher in the academic world for many years now, writing on the topic of character. Specifically, I've been writing more academic books and journal articles. And after a while, I kind of thought, boy, I don't know if I want to do this forever. The academic publishing has many, there are many positive aspects to it, but it also tends to reach a small audience. And it just, uh, I was thinking there's lots of really important topics about character that might be helpful to sh- explore with a broader audience. So about three years ago, I just took a change in my career and said, you know, the academy might not reward me for this. It's not something that academics are, are usually praised for doing, but that's okay. I want to try and take what I've been doing for many years and see if I can make it interesting and engaging and, and relevant to people's lives to try and reach a broader audience. So whether I succeed or not, that's what I try to do, and the result has been this book, The Character Gap. Now, I'd like to take a few moments to have you say, say something uh, about um, your approach to this book, and we'll, we'll beginning with part one, what is character and why is it important? Sure. So I'm a philosopher, so I think it's very important to start by getting clear on what we're talking about just saves lots of trouble if you you know people have asked me so you work on dramas productions or you go see a lot of movies and i say wait what are we talking about no we're not not talking about characters and movies we're not talking about characters and plays we're talking about moral character so i want to clear this clear the landscape right from the beginning and make sure we're all on the same page starting by uh clarifying what character is but then there's a natural follow-up question to that which is okay well this is what character is why care i mean what difference does it make? Why is it important? I've got a lot on my plate right now. I've got a million things I need to take care of. Why should I add one more thing, namely this character, to my list of things I need to do? So in Chapter 2, I explore why I think it's not just one more thing on the list, but one of the most important topics and concerns we can have in life. Why being a good person is so central to living a good life. Everything from 
how it promotes our own self-interest, makes our life, makes us happier, makes us flourish more, to improving our society uh, and bringing about a better world in the process, uh, to living up to the standards of different religions for people who happen to be religious, uh, to just uh, trying to model our lives after the lives of people of excellence, our heroes in life, people like uh, whether it happens to be Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman or Confucius, whoever our moral inspiration, the heroes are trying to live up to their example of what it is to be a good life. These are all kinds of reasons which move me and hopefully others to care about character and think it's really important. Now let's um, uh, move on to part two. What does our character actually look like today? So there I switch gears. So now I'm, I'm stepping out of philosophy and I'm looking at psychology because I can sit here in my office all day long and think about what the definition of character is and why it's important, but I can't make much progress on the question of how are people today actually doing? What does their character actually look like? That's an empirical question. I need data. I need research to inform me of that. So I kind of take one hat off, put on another hat, and read lots of studies, and then craft this picture based upon research, say, on helping, on harming, on lying, on cheating, on stealing, and so forth, hundreds of studies, craft this picture of what most people's character, I think, based on that research, looks like. And that's the picture of mixed character, where our character has some good sides and some bad sides, but not good enough to count as virtuous. On the flip side, not count, bad enough to count as vicious. And then finally, in part three, uh, what can we do to improve our character? So this is the most exciting part of the book for me. So it, it would be, I think, a shame to leave the book with part two. It, it just end right there. Because then we would have gotten this picture of mixed character, and we would have said, okay, that's our character. See ya. You know, uh, no, no help, no guidance, nothing to do about it. But I think there is help, and there is guidance to be offered. So fortunately, character is something that can be changed slowly and gradually over time. It can be improved, but it can also go get worse, too. So in that final section, part three, I look at some ideas for how to try and take our mixed character, mine included, I'm no exception here, and shape it in a better direction. So I look at both secular strategies and some religious strategies, too. On the secular front, these are strategies that are applicable to anyone, whatever their background is. And then on the religious front, I focus specifically on the example of Christianity, not because, and I want to be clear about this, I think Christianity has a better insights than any other religion, or that you have to be Christian in order to be good, or that this is an attempt to try to convince people to become Christians. I don't do any of that at all. But just to pick one religion, you know, a major religion today, and see what it has to offer from a religious perspective on the topic of how to improve character. Is how much in, in, in your work, your research, um, do, you, uh, do you see uh, self-interest as a primary motivator to our behavior? Uh, quite a bit. Um, th there's no doubt about it. So, some people in the past used to think it was the only motivator, uh, that everything we do is aimed at promoting our own self-interest. This is called the psychological egoism. Fortunately, that position, I think, has now been refuted, and there's not much support for it. But nevertheless, uh, often our behavior is motivated by self-interest. And sometimes that's, that's perfectly fine. It's appropriate. 
you know, so when I get hungry, it's perfectly appropriate for me to make a snack or make some dinner to, to benefit myself so that I don't uh, get too hungry. Or, you know, uh, I need to make some money to provide for my family. So that's, that's perfectly appropriate. But when it comes to moral questions, then it gets a little bit more complicated. So if our primary motive every time when we engage in a moral activity, like helping someone, is just to benefit ourselves, to promote our self-interest, then as we've already talked about, that's not going to be something that's in line with virtue. Fortunately, the research suggests that it doesn't have to always be out of self-interest, that we have the capacity to act towards others in an altruistic or selfless manner, in particular when it comes to empathy. So when we empathize for the suffering of others, that's a, a, a special window, an opportunity to help others apart from self-interest, stepping out of self-interest, and do so selflessly. We may benefit in the process. Uh, it may be that I help someone when I empathize with their suffering, and I feel good about doing that too. But my goal is helping the other person. What I'm focused on selflessly is their benefit, their, what's good for them. And as a byproduct or a side effect, I might benefit too. Now, you, you talked earlier about the role uh, uh, that religion could play uh, in, in this process. Right. Uh, the Kachurian, uh we'll, we'll just use Christianity for um, since an example that you, you put forth. The Kachurian might respond by saying, but Christianity is not immune from the impulses of self-interest that plague the rest of us. How can it be used as an example to help us move forward? Sure, and, and it's not immune, and we see dramatic examples and very tr disturbing examples throughout history where um, Christianity has been involved in some mass atrocities. So we have examples like the Inquisition, examples like the Crusades. The Holocaust, you pick one. Apartheid, yeah. slavery, you pick one. So there's, there are lots of examples. Uh, so the, the, the points here that I make are not to say that this is any kind of um, approach that's immune from problems, just like secular thinking uh, is not going to be immune from problems. So we can look at the 20th century and point out example after example after example of secular worldviews, which uh, were involved in mass atrocities too. So the point is, if carried out more faithfully, uh, with a, a focus on love and loving one's neighbor as oneself, uh, would Christian practices and activities and rituals and, and things like that uh, have something to offer to character pr promotion, character building, character formation. So to uh, take an example, would um, someone who prays regularly for, um, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others, would that prayer uh, be something that might make them less proud and more humble? Um, would it make them more selfless and less self-focused? And the the thing I want to suggest in that chapter is, yes, uh, I think there's good reason to think that Christian practices, as with other religions, too, I want to stress, if engaged in, in a faithful way, a way in which I think they're meant to be carried out, can be conducive to slowly improving character. It's not the only way, and there are ways to go wrong, but I think it's a helpful way. That's all I want to say. 
how does character look in our public discourse that seems to be dominated, these are my words, uh, what I would call a Machiavellian ethos in that, although Machiavelli never actually says the ends justify the means, it's, it's, it's certainly a lesson that one could derive from reading The Prince. What role does or can character play in a climate such as that? Yeah, so it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated climate for sure right now, and uh, the message of character is it's not clear where that message is is, is having a, uh, much to say at the moment. But here's one thing I would I would point to. There's lots of good empirical research on the power of role models, and so what I would suggest is if there could be some role models in the public square of good character, that could have a really powerful impact on the rest of, the, of a given society. Uh, so the, this research suggests that uh, when people see a role model who they admire, they often don't just treat that person at a distance as someone who's um, completely other than them. They're often inspired to try and become more like that role model, to uh, emulate or change their life so that it reflects better what that role model is like. Someone like um, you know, Abraham Lincoln might be an ex- a role model of honesty, for example. So we, we could look, to, no, not in every respect he's not a role model, but in this one respect we could look to him and say, um, boy, wouldn't it be good if I was more like him in my interaction with other people and more honest and less focused on my own benefits. So take that to, to the contemporary arena. Unfortunately, there are not so many uh, good role models these days out there, uh, but I would love to see a change there. Uh, people who were willing to, at the expense of their self-interest, demonstrate and just exude a good character, a character of compassion or honesty or justice, that could be the basis for inspiring other people to take a different path. But you're, you're writing at a time, uh, so is it we the people who must demand the moral character, or is it uh, we see the moral character first and then acknowledge it, um, or, or are we just simply giving lip service to this notion of moral character in our public servants? Um, well, I, I, think, I think people do, in general, care about character. The concept itself is maybe a little bit uh, less familiar than it used to be in the past. Character was much more influential social notion, I think, than it is today. But when we change from the talk of character to talk of specific virtues, like honesty and compassion and justice, it seems to me to be clear that people really care about those, that they're really important, and that they want their representatives to be exemplars of them, to be, uh, you know, have those those traits in a higher degree as leaders of society. So I I, I guess I have a more optimistic picture here that uh, yes, we really do care about character, and we want our um, our leaders to to have those traits. Unfortunately, we're kind of time and again disappointed when they they seem to fall short. Uh, but I at least uh, want to hold out hope um, that there there can be leaders who are are exemplars of character. And when, when, when um, to use your words, when, when we are disappointed because they fall short, is that uh, 
part of what we talked about earlier, sort of our own discomfort with our own murky middle and that we're not quite as moral as we want to be or, or and that immoral side comes through. What, what, what sort of uh, leads to that disappointment? Yeah, I, I have not conducted any research or seen much research on this myself, but my speculation is that we hold these public representatives to a higher standard. Um, and we might understand that, you know, in our own lives we have various flaws and we're in this murky middle, but as our representatives, we expect them to not be in the murky middle. We expect them to be on the virtue side. And so when we see, you know, cheating scandals or, um, or lie, systematic lying and this kind of thing, we think, wow, this is, this is just really disappointing. Uh, I expected better of someone who is supposed to be representing my voice in the public square. The book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? Author and philosophy professor Christian Miller, thank you, sir, for joining us today on The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. That was Wake Forest philosophy professor Christian Miller. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. The recent guilty verdict handed down to Bill Cosby for sexual assault, though not surprising in the abstract, did come as a visceral shock. For decades, in the annals of Hollywood, Cosby's behavior was one of its worst-kept secrets. More than 60 women accusing him of sexual impropriety, but as a legally blind octogenarian with iconic celebrity status and vast resources, it seemed Cosby would be allowed to run out the clock. Time has finally caught up with Mr. Cosby, though hardly sobering satisfaction for his myriad victims. But time had already diminished the image of Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable, the character he played in the 1980s hit sitcom The Cosby Show. Long before the guilty verdict was rendered, America's dad had been unceremoniously eulogized as a pariah in the court of public opinion with no possibility for redemption. Later in his career, Cosby used his Huxtable alter ego to justify his role as public moralist, criticizing low-income black people for their perceived failures. It prompted racial discussions under the linear title, Is Bill Cosby Right? With the benefit of hindsight, we can see Cosby's cynical obfuscation at work. Huxtable, the public moralist, pacifying maybe even justifying Cosby the rapist. His decades of legal rope-a-dope ultimately proved inadequate for the justice system. I hesitate to call the verdict justice, not because I believe Cosby was somehow railroaded. He wasn't. In fact, he skipped along, too long, in fact, parlaying an image that was 180 degrees from reality emboldened by what seemed like a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. But calling the verdict justice also feels inadequate. Justice is frequently touted as a desired outcome, but it is at best an insufficient substitute. There may be no better word suited, but justice falls miserably short.
What exactly is justice? Assuming our understanding of the word in this context is something that comes out of a legal or philosophical theory by which fairness is administered, how can a single verdict against Cosby become tantamount to justice? Now, I don't take issue with the women who declared justice was served in the Cosby guilty verdict. I'm simply offering there are no words in the American lexicon that are appropriate when human dignity has been violated. There are no words that will assuage the pain that many feel and will continue to feel as a result of Cosby's behavior. The violation of human dignity is unfathomable pain known only to those who must periodically endure its bitter aftertaste. When an individual has been wrongly convicted and incarcerated, does a monetary compensation, regardless of the amount, make up for past wrongs, somehow equates to justice? However understood, justice must be more than an a la carte outcome. Though we can never achieve complete justice for violations of human dignity, it should never again require that more women than an NFL roster telling the same story in order to be believed. Hopefully, the Cosby conviction will mean the genie is never going back in the bottle. Perhaps justice in our contemporary context is indefinable because our focus is misplaced. Instead of an outcome desired by those whose dignity had been violated, maybe the true measure of justice will be found in those who will not have to wait decades to tell their story, to be heard, and to be believed. Something to think about in that pursuit of a more perfect union. And finally, if you were a child in the 1970s, chances are you were influenced, entertained, and, in many cases, taught by Bob Doro. Maybe that name does not ring a bell, but suppose I say, I'm just a bill. Three is the magic number and conjunction-junction. I suspect that not only do many of that generation know who I'm talking about, you probably have memories that you've carried into the present day. For many, Bob Doro's Schoolhouse Rock was part of their Saturday morning experience. For younger generations, Schoolhouse Rock was preserved via reruns on cable television as well as YouTube. Although Doro was best remembered for his contributions to Schoolhouse Rock, he was a jazz musician and composer in the bebop era. His songs were performed by jazz greats, including Charlie Parker, and he collaborated with artists as varied as Hoagy Carmichael, Miles Davis, and Art Garfunkel. Doro died recently at the age of 94. In tribute to Doro, here is my favorite Schoolhouse Rock performance, Conjunction Junction. Conjunction, Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, Junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cards that get most of my job done. Conjunction, Junction, what's their function? I got and, button or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive, like this and that. But sort of the opposite, not this, but that. And then there's or, O-R, when you have a choice like this or that. And button or, get you pretty far. 
Junction Junction, what's your function? Hooking up two boxcars and making them run right. Milk and honey, bread and butter, peas and rice. Hey, that's nice. Dirty butt, happy digging and scratching. Losing your shoe and a button or two. He's poor but honest, sad but true. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. He cut loose the sandbags, but the balloon wouldn't go any higher. Let's go up to the mountains or down to the seas. You should always say thank you or at least say please. Hooking up words and phrases and clauses in complex sentences like In the mornings when I'm usually wide awake I love to take a walk through the gardens and down by the lake Where I often see a duck and a drake And I wonder as I walk by just what they'd say if they could speak Although I know that's an absurd thought Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up cars and making them function Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I like tying up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, watch that function. I'm gonna get you there if you're very careful. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I'm going to get you there if you're very careful. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I'm going to get you the Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.